Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day to you and everyone watching out there. We're taping on Friday. I think technically Saturday is is Veterans Day, uh, officially, right? All I know is the kids don't have school today. Okay, my kids are at school. Really? uh, but uh, I'm surprised. I, I don't. I don't hear any chaos in the background. So uh, one kid sleepy and one kid at a sleepover. There you go. Um, we'll see what the dog does. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start already, and it has been an eventful week, Bill. We're taping this late in the week. Normally, we try to do Wednesday or Thursday. We're recording this on Friday, but again, uh, we've had elections on in, on Tuesday in places like Virginia uh, and in Kentucky. Then on Wednesday night, there was a Republican debate. So I feel like we have a lot stored up. Where do you want to begin? Well, I, I really want to talk about uh, abortion and the election. Um, I don't know if you saw what I wrote uh, for the Washington Monthly newsletter. Uh, but I did, and I, I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, really? Why don't, oh, let's, why don't you set it up first? Right. And then I we're we're, we're going to start. We're, we're have a cracking show today. Uh, <laughs> So I mean, let's look at. So we, I think everybody knows, you know, uh, the abortion rights uh, movement won the referendum in Ohio. That's negating the abortion ban that the Ohio Republicans uh, had passed. Um, Glenn Youngkin put this was a, this is a separate column I wrote for the Washington Monthly. Uh, Glenn Youngkin put a 15 week abortion ban front and center in that campaign. It, it was it wasn't a gubernatorial campaign. It was a state legislative campaign. They had a split chamber, a split assembly um, where Democrats had the Senate, Republicans had the House. Youngkin said, give Republicans everything. We'll pass this common sense 15 week abortion ban. Oh, guess what? Democrats flipped the House. Now you get nothing. Uh, the 26 week uh, uh, ban limit you know, that exists stays in place. Um, All right. Let me jump in real quick. Yeah. Because I live, as you know, Bill, I live right across the border from Loudoun County, Virginia. Right. And what that means well, is... Loudoun County Democrats won that school board election too, by the way. So I get to see all the TV ads. Yeah. Right? Because I, I get like Washington, D.C. TV. That's okay. my major right. money market. So I get to see all the TV ads. And I have to say that I don't think the 15-week ban was ever adjudicated. Because you would not know, if you're a normal person who just watches TV you would not know that Republicans were pushing for a 15-week ban. All the Republican ads, which there were fewer, the Republicans were talking about crime. They were trying to scare voters that Democrats are you know, going to allow rapists or murderers in the streets. All the Democratic ads said Republicans want to ban abortion. They never mentioned 15 weeks. They would well, no. outright say. So of course, it is, but it is my belief that Based, it's totally anecdotal, but my suspicion is most people who voted assume that Republicans want to outright ban abortion. And what that means is, I think it does tell us that it's hard for Republicans to campaign on a 15-week ban, um, but I don't think it tells us anything about how the public actually feels about a 15-week ban. This is the mistake that Glenn Youngkin and the Republicans made. <laughs> Because you can you can poll and get poll data that says 15 weeks has majority support. You can do focus groups, which Youngkin did. I mean, they put a lot of effort into this. Uh, 
they you can do focus and say, you know, people have complicated nuanced views about abortion, but this is this is one of Youngkin's people was quoted back in August this, but you talk about 50 weeks, they start nodding their heads. Like, yeah, you can create artificial conditions. Well, people go, oh sure, I, I would accept that. And this is a and this is my own point. I don't think the average person even knows what 15 weeks means. Like people don't really know exactly what these lines actually mean in terms of where you are in a pregnancy. Yunkin was saying repeatedly, um, this is where a baby feels pain. And there's a lot of science. I, I have to say, Bill, again, I uh, follow politics, get the DC media market. And I'm, and, and I totally believe you when you say that, you, that Yunkin put a lot of work into this and he was like, I have to, I didn't see it. Well, I, mean, I never saw Yunkin talking about this. All I saw were, I, could not watch TV. I could not watch any. I couldn't watch Pardon the Interruption without three TV ads back to back to back with I'm a I'm a former district, you know, I'm a former uh, district attorney and my opponent, Matt Lewis, MAGA Matt Lewis <laughs> wants to ban abortion. I never saw Glenn Youngkin talking, trying to distinguish between a 15 week ban or a 10 week. Like, well, so here and I follow this. So let, me, let me say two things. So, so number one, so this is Glenn Youngkin on Stephanopoulos, national TV, Sunday, this Sunday before election day. Didn't see it. <laughs> First question out of Stephanopoulos, the 15, that 15 week ban is front and center in the campaign right now. Are you worried that's going to cost you the legislature? Youngkin, well, George, well, George, good morning. And there are huge elections in Virginia on Tuesday. Three short days away, and I appreciate you covering them because I think they're the most important elections in America. Because these issues that are so important to Virginians are also the ones that are going to be so important to Americans next year. And on the topic of abortion, this is a tough topic. It's one of the divisive topics across Virginia and America today. And I'll just I'll just remind you that four years ago in Virginia, they were one. They were one vote away from the Democrats passing a bill that would extend abortion rights all the way up through and including birth, paid for by taxpayer money. I really feel this is a moment for us to come together around reasonable limits where we can protect life at 15 weeks, where a baby feels pain with full exceptions for in the case of rape and incest when the mother's life is at risk. And I think this is a place that Virginians can come together. All the way up through birth is way too extreme. There was no attempt on youngest part to say, hey, George, this isn't about abortion. This is not just one issue of many. Mm -hmm. We got crime. We got taxes, parental rights on school boards. He made no attempt to to say this isn't the thing. I mean, there are other ads that they ran there on other subjects. Yeah. But he was leaning in. Okay, but the only point I would make, and now granted, I don't live in Virginia anymore, so that means I didn't get any mail, I didn't get any phone calls, all that. But I got the TV. Yeah. Okay? Now, I don't know that normal people watch George Stephanopoulos. I didn't even watch that interview this week. And this is what I do for a living. What I do know is normal people watch Jeopardy. And if you watch Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune, all you saw were TV ads saying Republicans wanted to ban abortion. Well, then this, this, this is to my, my second point. As much as Republicans tried to say, look, that's not what we're for. We're not for a full ban. We're for this common sense middle position. The Democrats, they're the extreme ones. That carries no credibility because there are so many Republicans and pro-lifers across the country that openly say they're for full bans. They've passed full bans or near full bans in other places. Florida, Ron DeSantis 
passes a 15-week ban in April 2022, gets reelected. April 2023, passes a six-week ban. We all know they want to keep moving those goalposts. So Youngkin's trying to say, we want to settle this at 15 weeks. But nobody believes that's going to be the end of the story. I mean, I think... I mean, I think part of the problem is that, you know, so first of all, I think that you're making a point, which is, which I th- is I think uh, that the brand, the Republican brand, uh, it's sort of like why Democrats, I'm sorry, it's sort of like why Republicans always get blamed for a government shutdown, because their brand is being the anti-government party. Therefore, if there's a government shutdown, we assume that they're, and they usually are, responsible for it. So I think that th- that's a valid point. I-, I also think, you know, there's this maxim in politics that says, if you're explaining, you're losing. And so what Yunkin would have had to have done would have been to spend overwhelming amounts of money to run ads explaining to people that, oh, this is just a 15... 15- our, our opponents say it's a ban. It's not... His really- choice! His choice to be... He organized 15 weeks... Back in the summer, try to make that the consensus party position. He has his own pack, Spirit of Virginia, which he raised eighteen million dollars for. I mean, he could have just said, "Hey, these are state legislative elections. I'm. I, I, it's not about me. These are local elections. We're local issues. Let everybody run their own little tailor-made campaign." He purposely put himself in the center, made this a top issue, and put and paid a fat target on his back. For Democrats to blast them, and so they all really want a full ban. This is all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, and I, mean, I, look, I think Democrats misrepresented the the law and the position by calling it by saying MAGA Matt Lewis wants to ban abortion. <laughs> a ban suggests a, a ban suggests to me a ban outlawing something, uh, making it completely illegal. As opposed to, well, well, like, Youngkin tried to say limit and not ban. He didn't want to use the word ban. Yeah. So I think word. Democrats misrepresented it. I, the only point I'm trying to make here, Bill, is, and I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to split hairs, but the only point I'm trying to make, is, and this may be a distinction without much of a difference in our political world, is I do not think we adjudicated this issue in the sense of I don't think this means the public doesn't want a 15 week limit. Or I think what this means is. This is a hard thing to campaign on politically. And if the Democrats are going to run campaigns and spend a lot of money saying that you want to ban it, then you're probably going to lose because otherwise you're trying to basically explain a a nuanced position. I mean, let's let's widen the lens here, which is what I tried to do in my in my newsletter uh, edition uh, yesterday. So since Dobbs, since the end of Roe. We've had elections in 2022. We've had elections in 2023. We've had uh, abortion rights uh, groups win state referendums in Kansas, Ohio, Michigan, Montana, Kentucky, California, Vermont. We've had close U.S. Senate races where abortion was at least one of the top issues, where Democrats won in Arizona, uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, and um, Nevada. We've had close governor's races where abortion has been at least one of the issues that were close uh, in Arizona, in Wisconsin, 
in Kansas, uh, in Oregon, uh, this year, in Kentucky. I mean, abortion was an issue in the Kentucky race that Bashir just won. Uh, and we have several state legislative chambers that have flipped, not just the Virginia House, but the Pennsylvania House, both chambers in Michigan, one of the chambers in, in Minnesota. Uh, and on top of all of that, in the past year, the number of abortions has increased. Do you not, some people say, well, look, the, the, the pro-lifers, they'll take these election losses if it means they're winning on the issue and they're actually reducing the number of abortions. They're not even doing that. I mean, some people have said, well, the growth seems to be a little slower. It's only 0.2% when some metrics say in the past few years it was 2% or 8%. Like, don't tell me that that pro-lifers are like, I am happy that I overturned Dobbs so I could maintain the current number of abortions in perpetuity. That's not what they're in this for. Yeah. So no, I, they might be willing to take electoral losses if you think that you've actually accomplished something meaningful and purposeful uh, and virtuous. But to um, to lose the to take the electoral losses and also lose the substance of the issue is uh, is is really you know a double whammy. Isaac, everything about the 50-year strategy to focus on overturning Roe has been a complete and utter failure. There were far more abortions reduced. I mean, a, a significant number of abortions reduced between 1990 and 2017 while, abortion, while Roe was on the books. Uh, and there's some debate over like why that was, but I think the I think the stronger argument, you can look at some of the studies by the Guttmacher Institute, for example, uh, that it is the reduction of unwanted pregnancy, um, sex ed, contraception um, use, uh, more so than restriction of abortion access. Uh, and to whatever extent that, that access was the issue in the 90s and yeah. the aughts, mm -hmm. the access issue is much more challenging now because of the widespread use of abortion pills. One of the reasons why, uh, even though in certain states the number has gone down, the net number nationally has essentially made the same because of travel and pills. Uh, so I, I just think if you if you're in this to reduce the number number of abortions, you got to rethink the entire game plan because what has been done is a total bust. Well, and I still haven't gotten to my uh, bone. I have to pick with you. Oh, um, it's not Virginia. No, that was just quibbling. This is the bigger bone. Okay. Uh, but before I get there, let me say, so I I do think that it matters that our laws matter, that they say something about us as a civilization, as, as a society. And so I, I think that uh, that a society that um, that values life and a culture of life, that that should be represented by our laws. So I um I'm and, and I, but I also think as you know I think Roe was wrongly decided to begin with um doesn't like my uh doesn't like my commentary. Sorry, so one of my kids came home, so dog just wants to greet her. All right, go on. So anyway, I support the fifty. You know, I support, for example, what Glenn Youngkin was trying to do in Virginia substantively. Um, however, I also think that you need to uh, win the the argument right and and have a culture of life and republicans and pro-lifers clearly failed to really do that 
And so they accomplish this political goal, um, but it does not seem to have actually uh, won the culture and won the argument. But, and but so, if, if that's, if you're trying to win it in your own certain way, you could very well not win anything. I mean, there, there was a story that went around. I don't even know if it's true. This might be totally apocryphal, um, but I've heard, I used to hear strategists tell this story that there was a airport expansion out of California that environmentalists wanted to stop because it was going to damage a, a, a frog habitat. And like the consultants was like, okay, the frog thing, that's not going to play. You want to really push, you know, what's going to do for like noise and traffic. And they're, and they're like, no, no, no. We want people to do this to stop to help the frogs. You know, like they, they want to win it their way. Right. Uh, and all evidence suggests that convincing a majority of uh, the country on a state-by-state basis that abortion itself is so bad that it should be illegal and you shouldn't do it, that is not the best way to reduce the number of abortions. There's well, I would say, though, too, and it, look, you're right. I mean, the trend is certainly um, reinforcing your argument, but we're still early in this. I mean, we're just like a year into into it. So I, I don't know five so, years. So, so, so tell me then, with all the data that we have seen over the past year, I, mean, I saw J.D. Vance had a thread about this where he was being sort of semi-candid that, hey, guys, this isn't working. You know, don't don't make excuses. Um, but then he was in saying we have to get behind a 50-week abortion ban nationally. And I'm like, what is the evidence? Like, that's the magic ingredient here. When you know, based on Virginia, like just being for that is not enough to convince people that that's really what you're getting. I mean, J.D. Vance, we know deep down thinks abortion is bad, period. He doesn't want to stop at 15 weeks. So why should I believe him that we should we shall get behind this plan? Uh, that That is the inherent credibility problem behind pushing that as a compromise solution, uh, uh, among other, I think, other scientific reasons. Uh, but what do you think is an alternative takeaway that would help pro-lifers improve their strategy going forward? Um, this is, I mean, that's a big question. I would have to really, really, it's deserving of a lot of thought. Um, I think the most obvious thing is that, um, we have not won the argument. And so this should not be viewed, you know, for 50 years, we were focused on getting Supreme court justices confirmed to overturn Roe. It took a long time. We did it. I think that was the right judicial decision. Um, but we did not, you know, we sort of did, you know, we, we accomplished our initial goal, but did not win the peace or, or whatever the analogy is. I think there has to be um, a major effort to try to win hearts and minds and to explain to people that this is not ra- like 15 weeks is like what they have in France. And um, this is not radical. And um I think you have to win. I don't think this is a campaign. I don't think you do this in like a couple months, you know, before election day or something. I think this is like a a generational discussion that needs to happen. So I think it's a big, it's a heavy lift. Um, 
But like I said, I, I do think that our laws reflect who we are. Um, and there's a lot of things that I'm glad are illegal because I don't think we should kind of be endorsing those things. Um, but then, then the next question is like, what, what's the fallout, uh, or ramifications. And, and so, uh, it's a, it's, it's a big problem Bill. And as you know, I mean, I think this goes to 20 politically, I'll take it back from big picture to, to sort of more narrow. I mean, in 2024, I think it's probably as simple as, you know, if the election is about abortion, Biden wins. If the election's about the economy, Trump wins. I know you disagree, but anyway, well, that's If it's about if it's about today, uh, yeah, that's a good argument. I still think the economic metrics are still pointing in the right direction, so that might not be true. I don't think it will be true a year from now, but. So, it, but it, more you know, more numbers. In my view, if it's about abortion, Democrats win. If it's about the economy, Republicans win. If it's about age, Trump wins. If it's about liberal democracy and preserving, you know, stopping the chaos, Biden wins. And I mean, I think that's basically what the election will be about. And so Democrats are going to want to, you know, by the way, I, I believe elections are about emotion, not logic. And if you watch the TV ads that I've been subjected to, the Virginia TV ads, you will know that this is a fact. But basically, Democrats want to scare you about how the Trump MAGA Trump forces want to take away your freedom, including your right to an abortion. And Republicans want to scare you about the woke left and crime and inflation. It's who can scare whoever's able to and, scare and, the and other and abortion, and abortion up until birth. I mean, they they they. They try to caricature the Democrats' abortion position too. Oh, I'm sure everyone, you know, bo both the fine people on both sides trying to uh, <laughs> trying to do bad things. Um, but yeah, this is a problem. I mean, I just totally concede to you, Bill. This is a political problem for Republicans. Uh, it's hard to argue about that. All right. So, uh, well, let me let me let me pick my bone real quick. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. One where, bone to pick. Uh, there have been so many bones. Where, where have we not seen all the bones? The uh, I won't spend much time on this. I, if you're like me, you don't write the headlines. Like I do not write the headlines on my columns. Someone else does that. No, I think I think I wrote these headlines. Okay, so there was a headline. I don't. I think it was your newsletter, but I could be wrong. Um, that talked of, that called pro-lifers anti-choicers, mm -hmm. and I just fundamentally disagree. Like for example. I would not call pro-choicers anti-lifers. I would say like, here's why pro-lifers are losing to pro-choicers. You, you you use the term anti-choicer, mm -hmm. um, which I, I take umbrage with. I, uh, I am somebody who, I, I, I toggle between what labels I use when I write about this subject. Um, Sometimes I'll say pro-life out of sort of deference to this is what they call themselves. And sometimes I'll use something that's more pejorative, you know, like anti-choice. Uh, and in that particular case, I mean, this is a news that are going out to a more liberal audience. Uh, you write subject lines, trying to be able to click the subject line. I didn't want to go pro-life in the subject line. Uh, and I didn't want to go anti-abortion just to save on characters. So I went anti-choice. That was, that was literally the logic behind that. I totally get it. But like, imagine if I wrote a piece that talked about, 
uh, anti-lifers. I mean, you'd be mad. I I I, I fully understand <laughs> that pro pro life such anti-abortion people do not want to be termed anti-choice. They might they, they might say anti-abortion because that's a literal truth. Um, yeah, I and I don't even. I mean, I understand that being called anti-abortion, the framing isn't great. I don't even really mind that or object to it. But, but by the way, as you sort of just pointed out, the fact that anti-abortion is very long probably means you could never use it for a headline. I mean, just a, a subject line. You it's really too want long to, be very, to use. Yeah, you want to be very taught yeah. you know, in the email subject line. This is why I think people get in trouble with Twitter, especially when it, well. Now, if you like subscribe to Twitter or Blue or whatever, you, you have like unlimited characters, it seems like. But I think like when there was like 140 character limit or whatever, the the need to condense things actually, in some cases, got people in trouble because um, sometimes you will make a choice based solely on character count for headlines and stuff. And that leads it to a more uh, uh, provocative <laughs> result. We've, we've got a long time on abortion. I know there's other stuff that we, we want to get to. Uh, the debate, Republican yeah. debate last night. Do you think it means anything at all? Well, um, I don't think it means anything in terms of uh, who who will Donald, you know, who will be the Republican nominee. I don't think it means that. But, you know, there's different things to take from it. I mean, like part of it is it was uh, a pretty good debate in some ways, probably the best of the three. Um I thought the moderators did a really good job of not letting Vivek Ramaswamy hijack the debate. Um, they got away from this BS thing where like if you get there, there, there's typically a thing where like if I mention you, you then you have the right to respond. Yeah. yeah. And what that does is it basically allows, um, you know, people who are the most provocative to get more screen time because yeah. they're being mentioned more. And I attack you. You attack me. And um and so uh, I think these moderators did a good job of not letting that happen. It was easy. If you watched that debate, you could come away thinking, oh, the Republican Party is sort of a mainstream party. You know, it's like Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, um, Tim Scott. And that's true, right? The majority of the people on that stage um, were pretty mainstream Reagan conservative types. But the truth is, like Vivek Ramaswamy actually represents more of the Republican base uh, probably than than they do. So it's a little so bit. They, so that, that Ramaswamy has the I mean, Ramaswamy and DeSantis have the most overlap with Trump yeah. issue by issue, and and really Scott too. I mean Scott's not all that dissimilar. Although he's got more you know it's different stylistically. Um, and I think but, stylistically is a big part of it though mm -hmm. too. Uh, you know Christie. And to a lesser extent, Haley, uh, more representative of like old guard Republicanism. And that's accounting for what? 20% of the electorate right now? Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you, if you didn't know anything else about the party, you might think this is a party that's more dominated by uh, these established type figures. But the fact is, this is, this is, a, si this is a literal sideshow of the Republican Party when the main event is the guy sitting in court, Donald Trump. Yeah. So it is amazing that, um, you know, we could watch a two hour debate. And by the way, thanks. I do appreciate them starting the debate at 8 p.m. East Coast time. I know it was in Miami. So that helps as opposed to being like at the Reagan Library where three hour time difference. So uh, but still, you could watch a two hour debate and come away and really not 
Not, I mean, I think Nikki Haley did well. Um, I thought DeSantis had his best debate, but that's kind of a low bar. I think uh, Tim Scott needs to drop out. I don't know if he will because he still has money, but uh, I see no reason for Tim Scott to stay in, even though I like him. Um, generally, I, I don't see a reason. I would, I would really like to see a debate that's that's uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump. Like th- that would be a, a nice debate, but we, we're never going to get that. Let me, get, let me ask you two different questions about the debate. Um, so we're, we've already seen a generational divide within the Democratic Party around the Middle East. Uh, I, as I think I've said on past shows, I don't think you have that big a divide amongst elected officials. I think when we, if, uh, we, we, we had an, well, we, we, we didn't have, we didn't have a real Israeli fund, Israeli aid vote yet because they had a Republican poison pill on it. Um, I think when we get to a final bill for Israeli aid and Ukraine aid, I expect that the vast majority of Democrats are going to vote for that bill. But we are seeing in poll data a uh, big gap between under 30, under 35 voters and older voters on sympathy for Israel, on a, approval of Biden's handling of Israel, uh, all that kind of stuff. And depending on the poll you look at, it's not necessarily consistent, but certain polls, you're seeing Biden taking a, 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 an extra dip in the general election trial heats, putting him at a disadvantage uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, so... All that said, what was your take of how the Republicans handled the Middle East in the de- as represented in the debate last night? Right. Well, I think actually, unfortunately, on both the right and the left, um, although there's a majority that uh, support Israel and Ukraine, um, I think that the ascendant wings, the energy the youth and the more ascendant, uh, you know, zeitgeist are more like isolationist and America first, um, and, uh, more, uh, sympathetic to, um, evil forces, (laughs) uh, than, than, than belief in, you know, uh, a coalition of of democracies or or what have you. So uh, I I think that there is a disparity, right? I mean, so the majority of the people on the Republican debate stage, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Tim Scott, um, even Ron, even I would say even Ron DeSantis were I would say generally just traditional Republicans who want to you know support our allies um, and and stand up to our adversaries and and terrorists. Well, let me let me quibble with that, um, and I, and I haven't gone back to look at the transcript and really parse all the words. And I uh, so forgive me if I'm if if I'm imprecise. Um, I believe Scott said he would attack Iran, uh, and I think DeSantis came pretty darn close to saying the same thing. Um, uh, I don't know if I think when Haley, I don't know if Haley or Christie uh, or Ramaswamy uh, took that question directly or not, or made any other comments in that vein. But it seemed like there is a you have a somewhat different divide on the Republican side. You have you have sort of the America First type by Ramaswamy, which kind of like let let them all fight it out. 
Yeah. Uh, let Israel, the Israeli, the Palestinians fight it out. Let's let the Ukrainians, the Russians fight it out. Let's just go about our own business. Uh, uh, I might be uh, inferring too much here, but uh, I think probably Christie and Haley might be more along the lines of let's support Israel, but Biden's being too squishy about it and trying to constrain Israel. Let's let Israel do what Israel does while we give them weapons and we stand by them financially. Uh, and then you have like an extra supercharged position was like, let's let's literally expand this war. Let's literally just like make it a full-blown regional war and go right at Iran. Um, so is, is there anything, is there in any way Republicans, well, I guess, are they misplaying this in a certain way? Are they going too far? Uh, are the divides on the Republican side uh, essentially nullifying the divides on the Democratic side? And so it'll end up being a wash at the end of the day electorally. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Mm. I guess my thinking is more long term. It's, it's a concern that although the majority of people, you know, the, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity, the, like, although the majority of people, of politicians, and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are in this sort of a mainstream support our friends um, that the ascendant forces on the right and the left, the young people, the energy seems to be um, like Vivek Ramaswamy uh, seems to be turning more turning inward and, and not um, recognizing uh, that we are in a struggle against, you know, the forces of darkness. I, I, I think that, I mean, so Vivek, by the way, you know, called uh, Nikki Haley and I think Ron DeSantis, um, Dick Cheney and three inch high heels. Mm -hmm. So obviously an attack on Cheney uh, perceived as a kind of a neocon war hawk or whatever. Uh, Vivek seems to have referred to uh, Zelensky as a Nazi. Um, although I think uh, Vivek tried, and his people tried to walk that back or say he wasn't. It, it, if you read the transcript, it seems like he certainly was doing that. Um, th these are like, essentially he's advancing Russian propaganda. And so even though he was only one out of five people on the stage that night, he was in a minority and he got booed at one point for attacking Nikki Haley's daughter for being on TikTok. I do think, unfortunately, he represents um, a, a growing uh, and powerful voice on the right. And I think that um, obviously, if you look at what's happening on college campuses and the anti-Semitism stuff happening in like Black Lives Matter and some of these rallies in New York, um, certainly among young people, I am concerned. Now, does it, uh, what does it say? I, I'm less sure about what it says about short-term elect, sort of electoral consequences. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very hard to, I mean, it's very possible that none of this matters electorally. That at the end of the day, you know, what's happening halfway across the world is not what's going to determine voting behavior, uh, despite the emotions that's, it's, that's getting up right now. But we won't know till we know. Uh, I'm curious how Trump absorbs all of this because he, I, I think he has certain actual beliefs, but they are... Uh, complicated by his narcissism and his desire to, to sell himself as the ultimate fixer of everything. Uh, so I've seen Trump push the 
Biden's leading us to World War III argument, which I think Vivek has also, Vivek has also done the same, which is... Actually, he says World War II. Oh, I'm sorry. He says that Biden's going to lead us into another, and into World War II. Right. <laughs> is, this, is this some sort of theory that World War I, World War II are one and, one and the same? I don't. I think he just is confused. I don't right. know. Um, but, you know, but hey, that, that actually would be great spin. If if he were to argue that actually World War One and World War Two were really just one big mm-hmm. conflict, and and so it's a misnomer. But that narrative is an argument, essentially an isolationist argument. We should not be entangled, yeah, with the world. So any flare up in the world that we have some involvement in, oh my goodness, World War Three could be World, anyway, World War Three, um, yeah. and. As if like there's never been a flare of violence in the Middle East before. I mean, we've, this is not the first time. Which also you know. means, and I mean, this is like me stating the obvious, but like all of the lessons from World War II, they are eschewing. Eschewing. Yeah. They're dismissing. I mean, like the obvious lessons from World War II that we should have, you know, never again, that we should have learned in many ways, the lessons of, of it, um, they have not learned. At all, so so I, I hear Trump echoing some of that in his rhetoric, but the push to attack Iran goes in the absolute opposite direction. That's literally egging on wider war. I mean, and that question came up. I think, I think Tim Scott yeah. first volunteered on his own in the debate, and then there they had a question from a representative from the Republican Jewish Coalition, who then asked asked the case directly. Though I think only DeSantis took it on directly. So. I only mention that because there's a there's a seems like there's a push from a faction of the party uh, to say bring it on, expand the war, and Trump, his posture towards Iran was always sort of incongruous, yeah, with the way he approaches say Saudi Arabia. And well, well, Saudi Arabia is sort of uh, again part of the. The, well, people the, the forget politics of the region, siding with the Sunnis over the Shias and the Persians. But his a, a desire to appease North Korea, his desire to appease Russia. Uh, yeah, people why. forget before he before we killed Soleimani, there had been numerous provocations from Iran that Trump did nothing to deter. He allowed them mm-hmm. to make very provocative acts that were not retaliated against, that were not deterred. And then ultimately, until he like takes it to 11 and kills Soleimani, which I thought was also provocative, right? But like, I think he should have sent them a message that, you know, there's something about like disciplining children. It says like, the way to do it is to let them know, or maybe it's even criminal justice, right? Like, you're more likely to deter criminal behavior. If a criminal knows, if I commit a crime, I will get caught and punished. That's more likely to deter them than... Well, there's also another path they could have taken, which was to maintain the Iran nuclear deal and keep them in the fold so they don't have a reason to be provocative. And one of the first things Trump ever said about the Iran deal when he was first running for president, he was talking to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, and he was sort of carping about the deal. And then he said, I will police that deal. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And and he got blowback yeah. from the more militaristic right. And then 
then he started talking about killing the deal. And then at the end of the day, he does, he does yeah. kill the deal. So I, mean, I think it was a bad deal that Obama signed. But once you're in it, then that's a different question. I'm not sure he should have gotten out of it. That was that was you know, General Mattis's point. Mattis was against yeah. the deal going in, but didn't want Trump to be the one to break it because you want it, you want America to keep his word. Yeah. But, but my more important point here is that Trump is inconsistent ideologically in his approach to these problems because he's part motivated by spite and ego and part motivated by actual belief. Uh, so going forward, I don't know if he is going to, at the same time, warn about World War III and say he will attack Iran. Yeah. Or, well, or will he say, I'm not going to attack Iran because I'm the one that's going to fix everything and, and bring peace to the whole region? Well, and I think, you know, we're seeing this sort of um, inconsistency with people like DeSantis and Scott, right? And this cognitive dissonance. And here's my my explanation for that is I don't think they're true believers in MAGA, Trumpism, America first, right? That's how they're different than Vivek, right? Vivek came of age. He was like 30 years old when Trump came down the escalator. I think he has internalized this Everything from the edgelord trolling to the ideology, America first, MAGA. I, I think Vivek is more either a true believer or just someone who has internalized it. Whereas I think obviously Scott and DeSantis were had political awakenings and even were elected before Trump kind of came along politically. And so I think that when they talk about, you know, Remember John McCain's bomb, 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 bomb around. I, mean, I think that like this is a vestigial mm-hmm. <laughs> tendency in the Republican Party mm-hmm. that under pressure they're reverting back to. I don't think that they've ne- necessarily thought through uh, the inconsistencies. Well, they're, well, they're um, all confused about the, it. The other point, though, Bill, real quick is the other point is I do think there's a stark distinction. Now, it is very unpopular to support Ukraine on the right, but you can be hawkish on other areas, right. but not Ukraine. Well, almost everyone in the Republican Party wants to say China is the biggest threat. And I think pretty much everyone in the Republican Party you know, would might say Iran right after that. Um, but they're split on where to put Russia in that. You know, there's the Lindsey Graham view, which also tracks with the Biden view, uh, that the funding requests for Ukraine and for Israel are logically linked because Russia, the Russia-Iran alliance covers both battlefronts. Uh, And the more Trumpian view doesn't want to factor in the fact that Russia and China, uh, I mean, it's Biden's fault that Russia and China are getting closer together and never mind what Russia and Iran are doing. They're not connecting those dots or connecting in a way that's self-serving. So there's a lot of can both parties have a degree of unsettled ideology when it comes to foreign policy, really going back to the end of the Cold War? Yeah. Uh, but it's a, an extra layer is being put on it because of what's happening in Israel right now um, and how that actually matters electorally. Mm-hmm. How does that matter in terms of the coalitions that make up the two parties? You know, that's kind of in, in flux right now. I think, I think it's been in flux for several years. It's just in flux in a night. In, in an, in an additional way. 
All right, Bill, I got to bounce soon. I have to go file my piece on uh, Joe Manchin. Well, and, your senator, uh, your senator's leaving us. Uh, what do, yeah. you, do you have a quick thought about that? Well, I'll just tell you my take. Uh, I ended up writing about political sorting, whereby there used to be, you know, conservative Democrats, liberal Republicans, effectively you had four political parties. And although that seemed messy, it was actually better um, because uh, you could have all these weird coalitions and compromises and and you might have something and I'm a rural Republican, you're a rural Democrat, we can work together on rural issues, whatever. Um, and now that we have sorted uh, geographically and politically, and I think that what's going to, I mean, I, I think that 2024 is kind of going to be the end of the road, right? For a lot of these guys, it's, it's, it's not just Manchin, it's Tester. Uh, it could be Sharon Brown. It could be Bob Casey. It, it's certainly going to be uh, Kristen Sinema. Um, not, not to lump them all in, but they're sort of moderate conservative Democrats. Um, and I think it's, it's probably not going to be a good year for them. And it may just sort of spell the end of, of this phenomenon as we know it. You know, I just I I don't know if there was a different way for Manchin to handle things. Um, I can't I, I I can't confidently say if he only did X, Y, and Z, he would have been in a better place to win re-election. I mean, I mean, obviously his bowing out almost guarantees this will be a Republican pickup, but the polling was already very bad for him, so it was looking very Republican yeah. regardless. Um, this is a state that Donald Trump won by like forty points, right? So well, good, I mean, good luck winning that. As a Democrat, no matter well, you know, who Andy Bashir just won in Kentucky, uh, which is a pretty Trumpy state too. Uh, and so I wonder if I'll obviously never know the answer. I mean, the the case for Manchin always was he delivers for West Virginia. He puts West Virginia first, so he transcends the partisan divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he became the pivotal. 50th senator for anything that was going to be party line through reconciliation and, and, and anything that was going to be for 60 was still going to be pivotal to that equation too. Um, that was, so there's, there's two ways you could have handled it. He could have said, I'm going to be the guy that stops everything and appeals to the Republican majority of my state, or I'm going to be the guy that shapes everything and delivers mm-hmm. for my state. And he'd always sold himself as a guy who delivers and, uh, and so he largely took that tack. He got things passed uh, in those first two years. And then he got squirrely about owning it. He was battling the Biden administration about the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and never just said, I did it. Here's why I did it. Here's what she's getting out of it. Um, I think if he took it in that direction and really you know, barnstormed the state and said, this is the money I brought in. This is where I'm, I'm helping with the transition. Uh, it sucks that coal is is doing less of our energy mix, but we're going to replace that. We're going to be better and stronger in the next chapter of West Virginia. Uh, I just think that would have been a, a better path to take. Maybe, again, it's a super Trumpy state. Maybe nothing. Yeah, I, I think on. you have to pick a lane, right? I'm not sure yeah. which one would have been best. I, I think the best move would have been uh, just standing up to Biden and uh, Democrats and I think the, pro- the the problem with that is that a Republican can do just the same. Yeah, well, um, whatever the case may be, I think he ended up having the worst of both worlds. I I think yeah. I, I think he made nobody happy. Yeah, pick a team. Um, but I I do want to say I Andy Bashir is an interesting point. I, I think there's a 
big distinction between governors and senators sure. in terms of I, I think that we I think it is much more acceptable these days to have a um, a governor who's sort of the, of the opposite party from your state than it is for a senator. And this I think it's one hundred percent true. And again, it might have been fatal for Manchin, regardless. But Manchin was sort of a quasi governor when he had been a governor. Yeah, and he was literally doing things in the Senate to say, "I'm going to get money steered to my state." Old school log rolling politics, uh, an extension of what I did as governor. I'm putting our workers first. So, like, I think that's the only way you're going to get cross party appeal in a state where your party is the minority. That's your best bet. Play the card, play play the card and play a card hard. That's not, that's what I would have done. All right. Well, busy week. Um, anything you want to plug, Bill? Okay. I got my, my Yunkin column and I got my, um, uh, well, actually I, I had two newsletters this week. So one was an extension of the Yunkin column about how this has been bad for the, uh, for the pro-life movement, uh, since, since Dobbs, uh, my Tuesday newsletter was looking at those New York Times polls uh, uh, that made Biden look so bad, as I, as I alluded to earlier, showing that young voters are peeling away from Biden. Uh, and my point there was to the extent that this, this additional setback for Biden is young voter driven and mil- Middle East driven, swapping out Biden does not help that at all. There is no Democrat there was magically positioned. There's no unicorn Democrats going to say, here's what I have to say about Middle East. And we all agree on it. <laughs> the, the, the challenge to them is that there, there's a generational divide on the issue that no one is situated to solve. And so either Biden muddles through this crisis in a way that makes it deprioritized next year, or it gets deprioritized because the economy is just a bigger deal, period. Um, swapping out Biden does not help that situation in any respect. <laughs> All right. Uh, check out my piece at The Beast. I did one on the debate in Ramaswamy. Um, I'm doing one on Joe Manchin and the sorting. And uh, two podcasts this week. Uh, I interviewed David Frum, who's always great. We talked about that New York Times Siena poll the, the where Trump is winning five of the six battleground states. So check that out. Uh, my, my interview with David Frum. Uh, also, I interviewed Patrick Ruffini, Republican pollster, about his book, Party of the People. Uh, check that out and follow us on Twitter at DMZ Show. And uh, until next time, Bill. All right. Have a great week. You too.